a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey guys, thanks for watching the video today. My prayer is that God will help me communicate this brief message with a lot of love and a lot of grace, but with a lot of clarity too. I don't want to be misunderstood. And that he will help you take what I'm about to say with utmost seriousness. I believe it's a very, very serious message. Brief, but serious. And I hope and pray that these questions will lead you to some very serious time with God. I think we've got to come to some clear answers for ourselves as followers of Christ. In 1862, a novel was published in England. It was entitled, The Chronicles of the Schoenberg-Cotta Family. It was written by a woman whose name was Elizabeth Rundle Charles. And the purpose of her novel was to try to communicate the heart and mind of the great Christian reformer Martin Luther, but to do it in a fictionalized manner. Well, in that novel, Elizabeth Charles wrote the following words. They were spoken by one of her fictional characters. And again, her aim was to communicate the heart of Martin Luther. So as far as we know, Martin Luther himself never really spoke or wrote these particular words, even though from time to time they have been attributed to him. <laughs> but he really did put down thoughts very similar to these in his many writings. Here's her quote. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition, every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldiers proved. And to be steady on the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. I think it's very powerful. In the 1960s and 1970s, we Southern Baptists had a deadly cancer growing in our midst. Many of our thought leaders, especially professors in our seminaries, had made the decision that the Bible was not really the Word of God. Some of them would say things like, well, the Bible contains the Word of God. But of course, that's a very different thing. <laughs> so these guys no longer affirmed what we sometimes call now the inerrancy of Scripture. In fact, it wasn't unusual at all to find one of them teaching that parts of the Bible were really not to be taken that seriously. So, for example, it became common for the academics to deny the worldwide flood you know, that occurred in the Bible says occurred in the days of Noah. They said that was just a fabricated story based on maybe a local flood. They denied the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea that's recorded in the Bible. They said, well, Pharaoh's chariots may have gotten mired in some marshes. Maybe some of his guys died. And the amazing account we read about it in the Bible, well, that's just a fabrication, just a made-up story. You remember the axe head that God caused to float in the time of Elisha, that they thought they'd lost that axe head? They said, ah, it really didn't float. We all know that iron can't float, so Elisha was probably able to fish it out with a long stick, and the rest of the miraculous account was just fabricated. 
They said, you know, we modern people know that virgins <laughs> don't give birth to babies. Give me a break. We know virgins don't have babies. You get the idea. I've told you before, I think, about the time I was a young man. <laughs> I was enrolled in the graduate school at the University of Tennessee at the time. I was pursuing a degree in education, administration, and supervision. And I was having a conversation with a man who happened to be the district supervisor in the East Tennessee area for Campus Crusade for Christ. And he and I were just engrossed in kind of a long conversation. And I said at one point, I know it's a long shot, but if the time ever came when I had any influence on the administrative decisions of the University of Tennessee, if I happened to work here someday, what would you like to see happen from a Christian perspective? Now, of course, that time never came. <laughs> I left the university, went into Christian ministry before I completed that degree. But he answered my question quickly. He said, I'll tell you what I'd like to see. I'd like to see a Christian on the religion faculty. <laughs> And I kind of did a double take and I said, you mean there's not one? <laughs> he said, I don't think so. So being the impulsive young man that I was, I just called the chairman of the Department of Religion at the University of Tennessee at the time and made an appointment to sit down and visit with him. And he quickly told me that he was a Southern Baptist and that brightened my countenance. I thought, oh, cool. We got a lot in common here. But it wasn't long until I realized he was a very different kind of Southern Baptist than I was. <laughs> so we had a long and interesting conversation that day disappointing though. And there came a point in that conversation when I said to him, let me just ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead? I mean, did he literally, physically, historically, actually come out of that tomb alive, rise from the dead? Do you believe that he really and truly died on the cross and really and truly came back to life again? Do you believe that? And he took a deep breath and said, well, Mr. Hall, you have to take into consideration the strong mythological element that was part of this early church. And he went on and on and on and on. And he threw in some vocabulary words that were over my head. And I was sitting there thinking, wow, he doesn't believe. He calls himself a Christian. He calls himself a Southern Baptist. But he doesn't even believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Well, it turned out there were quite a few people calling themselves Southern Baptists, kind of like him around in those days. But you know what? God raised up some men, some Baptist leaders, like Adrian Rogers, Charles Stanley, Jerry Vines, Homer Lindsay Jr., Morris Chapman, Ed Young Sr., <laughs> and many others to take a clear and firm stand on God's word. And they said very loudly, very courageously, very clearly, very firmly, lovingly, they were gracious about it, but very firm. The Bible doesn't just contain the Word of God. The Bible is the inerrant, infallible, verbally inspired Word of God. And they did something about it. They began to appoint people to the Committee on Committees. And then the Committee on Committees appointed people to the Committee on Boards. And the Committee on Boards began to appoint board people. And of course, over a period of years, those boards changed. And eventually, they were filled with people who believed the Bible. And eventually, the Southern Baptist Convention and our seminaries were saved. They came back to the Bible. It's an awesome, an awesome story. But listen, guys, at the time it was happening, there were many, many pastors throughout the convention who wanted so badly to straddle the fence. They didn't want to take sides. I knew some of them. They wanted to keep people happy. And they accused those who stood firmly on God's word as being divisive. They accuse them of not caring about unity in the body of Christ. 
Now, I believe they were very, very wrong. And it was very, very sad. And it was very, very painful to watch these men act in what I thought was such a wishy-washy, cowardly way. They did not want to take a stand because it was controversial. They knew they'd lose some people, maybe some givers. But thank God for the men who were willing to stand firm on God's word. Even when they were accused of being divisive, and they were. These guys took a lot of heat, but they stood firm. Now, I want you to know that what I'm going to say next, I'm I'm speaking personally here. I'm not trying to represent anyone but me, okay? (laughs) I think some of you will probably identify with me and agree with me. Some of you may not. But I think we may have entered into another great time of testing for the church. And I believe it's going to prove to be a very difficult time for the followers of Jesus. I really do. Now, I know, in a sense, all times are times of testing. It's really true. I mean, there's no such thing as just an easy Christian life, right? But from time to time, the testing gets particularly difficult. The fires get hotter. And I think we're entering one of those times right now. I believe we Christians are going to be forced to decide where we stand. I don't think we're going to be able to hide. Not very long. (laughs) And it seems to me, personally, that Satan is setting this up. He's baiting an awful hook that he has with a non-Christian worldview that entices Christians with a promise to take care of the poor, take care of the downtrodden, and that appeals to Christians. But the temptation is to obey a biblical command. Of course, that's a biblical command, but they're wanting to do it in a very non-biblical way. And also, with another lie, that the most loving thing we can do for people is agree with people that their sin is really no big deal. That is a lie. If God says in his word that something is sin, it's a big deal. All sin is a big deal. All sin eventually destroys. And on top of this cultural fire that's raging all around us, there's a pestilence in the land. And each one of us is going to have to make a decision based on information that's not always consistent, and it may change from day to day. And we have a lot of praying and thinking to do as we try to make those decisions. Now, I could talk way too long about all this, But I don't want to do that today. Having said that, I want to just offer some questions to you that I think Christians are going to have to deal with very seriously. So I'd just like to submit a few of them to you right now. I'm I'm going to be tempted to talk about them. I know me. (laughs) But I would urge you just to take these things and add them to your prayer list. Ask God for wisdom and how to answer them. I'll do my best not to talk too much about them right now. Of course, I'd be happy to discuss these questions in more detail with you if you like. But for now, I just want to list them. I want you just to mull them over. I want you just to pray through them. And I'll make sure they're listed at aboundingjoy.com when I upload this post. So here you go. 20 questions. And I need to probably say I've not listed them in any particular order. I just offer them to you as they came to my mind and I wrote them down. Number one, is the Bible really the Word of God Is my mind settled on this basic truth? Number two, does the Bible really teach that God created sex exclusively to be between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman who've entered a covenant of marriage with each other and that all other sexual expressions are sin? Number three, 
Does the Bible really teach that homosexual behavior is sin? Number four, does the Bible really teach that God created men and women in his image as male and female and that he and he alone gets to make that decision? Number five, as the culture we live in grows bolder in standing against scripture, is it acceptable for me as a Christian to try to kind of stay under the radar and try not to say much about these things? Number six, if many officials of one political party, in this case, I'm talking about the Democrat party, choose to oppose biblical teaching about life, about sex and gender, about individual responsibility before God, about the private ownership of property, should I as a Christian refuse to point that out in order to keep from sounding too political or too controversial or too divisive? Seven, if some people who call themselves Christians ignorantly embrace non-biblical worldviews like critical theory, supposedly in the cause of caring for the poor and the downtrodden, do I have a responsibility as a Christian to communicate the truth about these worldviews? Number eight, if my church is not taking a clear and open stand on these issues so that everybody knows where they are, should I stay in my church and try to influence my church to take a stand? Or should I find a church that's more willing to stand clearly and openly on God's word and God's truth? Or should I just keep quiet and pray that the situation will improve? Number nine, am I willing to be called a hater and a bigot and a homophobe and a white supremacist and a cultist and other nasty names in order to stand firm on God's word? Number 10, am I prepared to be cut off from social media and the internet in order to stand firm on God's word? Number 11, am I willing to risk losing friends in order to stand firm on God's word? Number 12, if standing firm against what the Bible calls sin and doing it in a loving and gracious way if that causes division in the church because some don't think we should take such a stand, should I keep quiet in the name of unity? Number 13, is it acceptable in the name of unity to give people reasons why it might be okay to vote for a pro-abortion, pro-sexual revolution, pro-critical theory candidate? Number 14, have I considered how I can pray for and encourage other Christians who are trying to stand firm in these difficult days and who may be facing persecution for their stand. Number 15, how do I pray for and how do I stay submissive to government leaders who oppose God's truth? Number 16, how do I communicate love for people who disagree with me? In particular, how do I love those who've embraced the sexual revolution? or those who've embraced abortion, or those who've embraced critical theory, or those who've embraced the idea that it's important to keep Christians quiet? And how do I love people who identify as Christians, but who seem to want to keep quiet? They want to lay low. They want to stay out of the battle in a cowardly kind of way. 17, am I mentally and spiritually prepared for persecution? 18. How does God want me to respond to the COVID situation? 
19. Is it possible for Christians to carry out God's commands for us to assemble, to encourage in ways other than actual physical meetings? 20. In the midst of all the uncertainty around us, what kind of decisions do I need to make day by day, I could add moment by moment, to bring God the most glory possible? Now, I'm sure there are many more questions that we could add to this list that we need to pray about. You might be thinking some of them right now, and that's fine, but I'm going to stop my list right here for now. I do want to, before I stop this post, though, I do want to add just a few quotes from God's Word that I think might be relevant for these times we're in and may have a bearing on at least some of these questions that I've posed. Here's one from Ezekiel chapter 33. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he's taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. You might want to read that whole chapter. Jeremiah 8. The wise men are put to shame. They're dismayed and caught. Behold, they've rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom do they have? A couple of verses later in that same chapter. They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time of their punishment they shall be brought down, says the Lord. And again, you might want to read that whole chapter. Paul wrote to the Galatians, When Cephas, he's talking about the apostle Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In other words, Paul put biblical truth and biblical principles above any concern about being called divisive. James wrote this, For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. Paul wrote this to the Galatians, For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I'm still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. He wrote this to the Thessalonians. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts. And then he wrote this to the Colossians, chapter 1. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, and I put this here because this is a wonderful prayer for us to pray for ourselves, yes, and for other Christians during these very difficult, painful days. Here's the prayer. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's pray for some of that wisdom right now, okay? Father, here we are in a very, very difficult time, very confusing time, and we need you more than we've ever needed you. We need your wisdom. We thank you for the prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians, and we pray it for ourselves, Lord, and for people we love, and especially for men and women who are doing their best to stand firm. We pray you'd raise up more and more of these people who are willing to take shots, who are willing to be criticized, who are willing to be 
persecuted even, rather than back off the truth. Lord, please give them great love and grace and sensitivity. I should say us, Lord. We want to be included in that number. Give us all, but especially those who have a lot of visibility. Give them grace to be loving and kind and and, and compassion and in their communication. But Lord, never ever to compromise your truth and never to hide and never to try to avoid being seen taking a stand. Lord, help them. Help them to stand firm, clearly and boldly. And I pray that you would bring about conviction across this land, that there might be genuine awakening, genuine repentance, genuine coming back to you. Lord, it looks bad to us right now. But we know you're still on the throne. We know you're still God. We know you haven't changed one whit. Nothing has caught you off guard. Nothing has caught you by surprise. You're in charge. So, Lord, if we need to go through some fiery times, we know that other believers have done the same thing and you brought them through it. You'll bring us through it, too. We know that one of these days we'll be with you forever. And nothing can separate us from you now and forever. And we thank you for that. Of course, we thank you most of all for Jesus because he made this possible when he died for us on the cross and then conquered death by rising again, conquered Satan, conquered hell, conquered sin forever. So, Lord, we thank you that this battle has been won already. We just have to fight it through to the end. And, Lord, we want to be found faithful. We want to be answering these questions in a way that will bring you a lot of glory. We don't want to be missing in action. We want to be staying in the battle until you call us home. Lord, for each one of us, we know that's going to mean something different. We just want to be sensitive to you. Lord, we want our lives to count for you. We want you to get glory. We don't want to be hiding, Lord. We want to be standing firm in Jesus. So please use us for your glory. Help us to think clearly. Help us to think biblically. Help us to be like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.